So we are going to ordain elders and deacons today. That's going to be happening uh, after the offering time. So uh, there will be kids in here, and that's fine. Like, kids are always welcome in here. And I want to just say this real quickly as the pastor of Liberty Northeast. We, the way we intentionally shape our language is to say kids are welcomed into this service if you would like, we have Liberty Kids available to you. So we're used to kids being in here, but it's kind of a family moment, this elder and deacon ordination. So we want to make sure the kids are in here as well, because it's not only just your leaders, but it's their leaders too. And so we want to talk about that as well. So we, though, today are going to be doing a new sermon series in the letter of Galatians. So if you have your Bibles or you grab one of the Bibles in the pews, we're going to be in Galatians chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. We will be in Galatians until Advent. And so although we're not going to touch on every verse in Galatians, we'll touch on most of them. So it's vital that you are reading Galatians yourselves. One, because you want to make sure that I'm not making things up, that what I'm saying is coming from Scripture, but two, so that you can draw closer to God himself through his word. So many of us go, God, what's your will for my life? God, if you would just speak to me. And very clearly God says, I wrote a book for you. I've, already, I've talked to you. Here it is. And the Holy Spirit illuminates that for us and drives us closer to Jesus and makes us more like him. So we have purchased scripture journals. We have about a dozen of them on the info table outside. If you would like a scripture journal, you may take one, have one that's free of charge, and you can kind of, you'll see the pages or the verses of scripture, and there'll be some blank pages right next to it. So as you're reading, you can take notes as well. But what we'll see from Galatians is this major theme. The gospel of the crucified Jesus frees us in the Spirit, to love God and others. The gospel of the crucified Jesus frees us in the Spirit to love God and others. That's why we say Galatians, and the subtitle of this series is The Freedom You're Looking For. Everybody's looking for freedom, but the gospel frees us in the Spirit to love God and love others. The freedom you're looking for is right here in Galatians. In the scriptures. See, Galatians is like a gospel bomb that has all this residual effects. It hits the ground and explodes, and the dust of the explosion hits every area of our lives. It's not that just a gospel hits us at a point of salvation, but like a bomb hits, it hits us there, and it spreads all throughout our lives. So it doesn't just happen at the moment we believe, which many of us as Christians have been taught. But it's every area of our lives is touched and influenced and changed and transformed by the gospel. And so we need to get this right. You need to get this right. You need to know it, believe it, be changed by it. Because if the gospel is doing its work by the power of the Holy Spirit, your life will be set free. And so much in our world, wants, these things want to enslave you. They want, it wants to bring you down. And the Bible says, if you want to be free, here it is. And today as we look at Galatians chapter 1, I want you to realize that the gospel reveals that the only thing you need 
for God to be happy with you is what Jesus did for you. The only thing that you need to make yourself right with God, to be justified before him is how Galatians talks about it. For God to be happy with you is what Jesus has already done for you. And so I want to talk about deserting the gospel and I want to talk about holding fast to the gospel. So many of us are so tempted to desert the gospel, and I want to talk about that, but I also want to talk about what it looks like to hold fast to the gospel. And what are we actually holding fast to is important for us to know as well. So let's dive in here. Let's look at Galatians chapter 1, verse 1. Starts off just like this. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia. Paul is the author of this letter. Paul is an apostle, which in Greek it means sent one. He's sent by God. So Paul's saying, I'm Paul. I'm sent by God. And Paul is particularly sent by God to take the gospel to the Gentiles, to non-Jews, which is good news for many of you. I don't know your background, but I, for me at least, I have no Jewish heritage. So Thank God, God sent Paul to tell the Gentiles about the gospel because now I'm standing here in front of you today because of it. And Paul was sent to the Gentiles to let them know that Jesus lived the life that they should have lived, completely obedient, perfectly obedient to God, and he died to death. We all deserve to die as a sinner. And he rose again from the dead, and because of Jesus their sins can be forgiven. Because of Jesus, the family of God is open up to them without them doing anything to earn it, without them doing anything to deserve it. Jew and Gentile are now part of the family of God all because of what Jesus has done. And Paul says, and guess what? This was God's plan all along. All along was to create this family, a new family of Jew and Gentile together. And the reason why Paul starts this letter, Philip Reichen says in his commentary, he says, apparently some critics were quick to point out that Paul was not one of the original 12 disciples. They go, that, that guy, I don't remember him walking with Jesus. He's a latecomer, they claimed, who had not been commissioned directly by Christ himself. Therefore, he was only a second-rate apostle. His gospel was just hearsay. So this is really important for Paul because Paul realizes that when they're challenging him, these critics, these agitators, when they're challenging him, they're not challenging him, they're challenging Jesus. And Paul says in Acts chapter 9, I was on the road to Damascus to kill Christians. And Jesus appeared to me out of nowhere and knocked me back and opened up my eyes and, literally, and physically closed my eyes. He called me out in that moment. I have been given the gospel by the risen Jesus. And he's saying the gospel is not something that humans made up. It's something God himself gave us. And if that's true, you have a decision to make. I have a decision to make, believe it or not. If it's from God, I've decide, do I believe it or do I not? Do I ignore it or do I embrace it? Do I desert it or do I hold fast to it? 
And oftentimes, like I said, Christians think that the gospel is only something that non-Christians need. But Paul is dropping this gospel bomb of a letter, not on non-Christians, but on Christians. See, if you're a non-Christian here and you're with us today, we're grateful that you're here. You do need the gospel. But Christians need the gospel just as much as non-Christians. Do you notice Paul says that it's written to the churches in Galatia? These are people who gave their lives to Jesus, who've been baptized, who read their Bibles and pray, who attend church, and maybe they even went to home meetings and they served the poor and they volunteered at the Harvest Festival. Galatians is for Christians. So Paul drops this gospel bomb on Christians. See, the gospel is just as much for Christians as non-Christians, and we have a decision to make about it. Do we desert it by distorting it? Or do we hold fast to it by allowing it to transform every aspect of our lives? So jump ahead to verse 6 with me. Paul says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we, Paul says, even if I come back and I show up, or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached, let him be accursed. And he says it again, as we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Paul is astonished, shocked, flabbergasted that the Galatians would turn the good, from the good news of the gospel so quickly. They've turned so quickly from the fact that Jesus lived the life they should have lived and died the death they deserved to die and rose again from the dead. They're deserting, Paul says. The word it gives us this picture of turncoats, of traitors. They're like the Benedict Arnolds of the gospel. He's saying, you Benedict Arnolds, how could you do this? Come on, guys. So he's shocked at the Galatians, but he's angry at those who are misleading them, these agitators. Why? Because they're distorting the gospel. See, the central verse of Galatians is Galatians 2.16. It says, Paul says, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. These agitators are distorting the gospel by adding to it. They're saying, sure, believe in Jesus. Paul's got that piece right. But if you really want to make God happy with you, you also need to uphold the law of Moses. All your males need to be circumcised, and all of you need to follow the dietary and ceremonial laws of the Old Testament. Like, Paul's this new guy, but, you know, the Jewish people, we've been around forever. We know how this game is played. So Paul's angry. Angry. And why shouldn't he be? 
he sees they're in danger. See, if a loved one in your life who's been fighting addiction and they start to find victory and they're on the road to sobriety and one of their friends pulls them back into addiction, wouldn't you be righteous in being angry at the person who pulled them back in? Or if someone was threatening to hurt your child, wouldn't you be righteous in being angry with that person? Paul's absolutely righteous in being angry with them because he realized how dangerous it is. It's the love that Paul has for the Galatians that drives this righteous anger because he sees a false gospel is dangerous for them. The true gospel tells, that, tells you that because of the work of Jesus on the cross, your sins are forgiven. It's not about what you've done or where you've been, or where you've come from, you can't earn it. It's all about what Jesus has done for you on your behalf and what he's earned for you. But these, because of these agitators, the Galatians are hearing that Jesus' work wasn't enough. And so Paul says, this is leading you down this dangerous road. See, when we believe false gospels, it leads us down this dangerous road because that means that it's now on you. It's on you now to make God happy with you. And if it's on you, you have to hope every step of the way that the scales are balanced in your favor and that you've done just enough right things for God to be happy with you. So you live in this constant fear and you never have any assurance of God's forgiveness of his pardon when you sin because your sins may finally have tipped the scales the other way and now God's angry with you. See, a false gospel says you have to do something for God to be happy with you. And Paul's saying if you trust in Jesus, God is already happy with you because what Jesus did for you. I mentioned it last week, but one preacher once said that the gospel is Jesus plus nothing equals everything. It's that simple. That simple. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. But because it's that simple, we have trouble believing it. And we look at some, for something else to save us. My friend had this aunt at Christmas time who would always keep extra Christmas gifts tucked away in the closet. And the reason why she did that was because in, just in case a neighbor or a friend stops by and gives her a gift, she didn't want to be empty-handed. She wanted to have the opportunity to repay that person for their gift. And we do the same thing with the gospel. We distort the gospel by adding to it. We think God's going to show up and he's going to give us this gift of the gospel. So we need to be ready to repay him. But when we do that, we end up believing in a false gospel, which Paul says is not a gospel at all. And by doing so, we desert the true gospel completely. And did you notice that it's those who claim to be Christians are the ones who are distorting the gospel? John Stott said that the church's greatest troublemakers now as then are not those on the outside who oppose, ridicule, and persecute it, but those on the inside who are trying to change it. 
these agitators are Christians. They're coming from within the church. They're insiders. They're not the Romans. They're not the priests of the imperial cult. They're Christians. See, the greatest danger towards the gospel today is not Democrats. It's not Republicans. It's not the woke or the non-woke. It's not people pushing critical race theory or the LGBTQ agenda. It's not capitalists and it's not socialists. The greatest danger to the gospel is ordinary churchgoers like you and me. The greatest danger to the church is the church. Sit with that for a second. The greatest danger to the church, to the gospel, is you. Is me. Because we quickly want to just believe the false gospels in our lives and in our hearts. See, what makes the false gospels so dangerous is that they seem so beneficial. maybe we do need to worry about some of those things I listed off. And so we go, we misplaced the real danger, you and me, and we shifted to someone or something else, and false gospels then begin to take root. So what we like to do is we like just sneak in a little extra to the gospel. And once we do that, we become a church without the gospel. As soon as you start sneaking little things in and adding that to the gospel, we no longer are a church that holds on to it. We're a church that has deserted it. Ray Ortland Jr. is a pastor. He tried to imagine the church without the gospel. What might our evangelicalism, which is, sorry to break the news to you, we are an evangelical church. He said, what might our evangelicalism without evangel, the word good news, look like? He asked. And he says it would look like this, a passionate devotion to the pro-life cause, a confident manipulation of modern managerial techniques, a drive towards church growth, a clever appeal to consumerism by offering a sort of cost-free Christianity light. Or he says, a determination to take America back to its Christian roots through political power. Or a warm affirmation of self-esteem. And Phil Riken comments on this. He says, in other words, the church, and Phil Riken and Ray Ortland Jr. are not liberals, by the way. In other words, the church without the gospel would look very much the way the evangelical church looks at this very moment. He says, we cannot simply assume that we have the gospel. Unless we keep the gospel at the center of the church, we're always in danger of shoving it off to one side and letting something else take its place. See, we end up shoving the gospel, the true gospel, aside for these false gospels that are so close and maybe even come out of the gospel that we fail to see the difference 
between a false gospel and a true one. And so we say you have to believe in Jesus, absolutely, but then you have to vote this way. Or you have to be passionate about this thing. Believe in Jesus, sure, but be passionate about pro-life causes too, and God will be happy with you. Or read this Bible translation. Well, if the King James was good enough for Paul, it's good enough for us. Or you have to preach this way. Well, unless you do verse-by-verse expository preaching, your church is on the road to hell in a handbasket. Or if you do, don't do topical preaching, then you don't care about the gospel and reaching people's actual needs. Or your church isn't faithful unless it worships like this. Unless it has a good balance of liturgy and dynamic elements. Unless it's actually strictly dynamic or unless it's strictly liturgical. Or maybe a little closer to home. You need to be pro-mask if you're a real Christian. You need to be anti-mask if you're a real Christian. You need to be pro-vax if you're a real Christian. You need to be anti-vax if you're a real Christian. And then what we do is we couch these things in Christian language to shame people into obedience. And I don't know if you've ever tried to shame people into obedience. Like you ever tried to shame your kids into obedience? It doesn't work. But we couch it in this Christian language and we say, well, we, we are putting faith over fear. But not your church. Not you. Hmm. We, we love our neighbors as we love ourselves. You don't. And so as your pastor, like Paul, I am angry that certain people have troubled you and distorted the gospel by saying you have to do these things or be this way or be passionate about this thing for you to be a Christian because I'm watching in your lives and in your hearts being pulled away to those things and believing that's the gospel. And I'm calling out to you saying, please, don't, don't, don't. I'm angry at them. I'm not angry at you. But I'm astonished and shocked. And you know how I know you do that? It's because I do it too. And I have Paul jumping off the pages. I have men in my life who call me out and say, Evan, you're being pulled this way. And the gospel's right in front of you. See, the things that they're saying might be beneficial. It might sound like the gospel or the Bible. It might be a good idea. Like it's good to obey. Or it might be good advice, right? Self-esteem stuff might be good advice. I'm a middle school girl soccer coach. It's probably a good idea that I don't crush the self-esteem of middle school girls. But it might be a good idea or good advice, but it's not good news. It might be good advice to be passionate about these things, but it's not the good news. It might be a good idea to do church this way, but it's not the good news. And because we think the gospel is so simple, 
that it doesn't require enough, and it should require people to look like me, to look like you, to look like us, and believe like us, and vote like us, and behave like us, and it becomes less and less about Jesus, and more and more about our control over people. And so by controlling them, I'm saying that Jesus isn't enough. That unless they vote like this or are passionate about this or believe like this or they vote or sorry, they behave like this. Jesus can't be enough unless they do this. So I blast everything out on Facebook because I, I gotta control the way people view this little piece of world history. Like no matter how long the pandemic lasts, in the eternal plan of God, it's like a dot on a basketball. And so what happens, I begin to exchange a truth for a lie. And once I've done that, I've deserted the gospel entirely. So Paul calls the Galatians, and the Bible calls us to hold fast to the gospel. So look at verse 3. Jump back. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. These three verses are jam-packed with the gospel. And before Paul is astonished, which is really interesting because Paul usually opens up his letters, greets people, and then he says, oh, I'm so thankful for you. I've been praying for you. Oh, you just like, my heart is just connecting with yours. To the Galatians, he says, he, he hits them with this piece, and he says, I'm astonished. But before he's astonished, before he's angry, he wants them to hear the gospel again. He wants them to understand the truth that the gospel tells us, which is the truth about God and ourselves, that we were born into sin. That's why Jesus gave himself for our sins. And we naturally choose to resist or reject God every time. And because you're a sinner, because I'm a sinner, you're spiritually unable to deliver yourself from your sin. The Bible tells you the truth about yourself. But tell us the truth about God, which that's why Paul says that Jesus came to deliver us from the present evil age. The word deliver is the same word that Luke uses in Acts to refer to God rescuing Israel from slavery in Egypt. He's saying, here's a new exodus, Paul's saying. He, you've been enslaved. These things are enslaving you. Jesus is the new, greater Moses is pulling you out of the, the greater, worse Egypt. And you and I are slaves to the Egyptians by being a slave to Satan. But we're also slaves to the present evil age. You notice Paul doesn't say that Jesus delivers us from hell? That might be true, but Paul's talking about this present evil age he delivers you from. Right here, right now, the time we live in. The time marked by things like chaos, suffering, and disease. Oppression, abortion, sexual expression that dishonors God. 
Addiction, pornography, abuse, bitterness, anger, anxiety, broken marriages, broken families, broken systems, every single thing in this world that enslaves you. And because you're a sinner, because I'm a sinner, we'll choose those things time and time again, and we'll choose to go back and live like the present evil age. But Jesus can deliver you from all of that. Jesus can deliver you from addiction, from pornography, from abuse. Jesus can deliver you from bitterness and anger and anxiety. Jesus can deliver you from broken marriages and broken families and broken systems. He gave himself, Paul says, to deliver you. He died on the cross for you, taking your place. And you know what will never deliver you from all that? You know what will never deliver you from anxiety or anger or bitterness or oppression or chaos or disease? False gospels that say you just need to keep working harder until you've done just enough for God to accept you. Tim Keller, when he talks about this passage, he says, imagine you see a drowning woman. It doesn't help her at all if you throw her a manual on how to swim. You don't throw her some teaching, you throw her a rope. And Jesus is not so much a teacher as he's a rescuer. Because that's what we need most. Jesus doesn't call out and give you a lesson or show you a YouTube video on how to swim while you're drowning in sin. And say, hey, good luck with that. Hope you take my teaching and apply it. He tosses you a lifeline. And it's not some type of cheap grace because he gave up everything in order to do that. It's costly and requires you drowning to grab the rope. Put your faith and trust in Jesus. Just grab the rope and put everything else behind that you think will save you. And that's costly. And all you have to do to receive that rescue It's just reach out for the rope. Just believe it. That's it. Nothing more. And why did Jesus do it, Paul says? Why did he do it? Because of God's grace. You didn't ask for deliverance. In fact, you didn't even realize you needed it. Like you thought you could swim, but you were drowning. But God and Jesus did it for you anyway. When David preached, he brought up the gospel grid. We should have a picture of that. See, the more I become of God's, aware of God's holiness and my sinfulness, the beauty and value of the cross gets bigger. And I obey God not to earn his favor or love or try to make him happy with me, but because I'm so incredibly grateful for that. Like the more you realize what God in Christ did for you, don't you want to be grateful and obey? But so many of us keep the cross small and we try to fill in the gaps with all of our work, our hard work. But when I realize this, everything Jesus has done for me, And I become aware of the truth about God and myself even when I sin. 
And even if the devil were to show up himself and tell me that I deserve death and hell, I can throw it back in his face. Martin Luther used to talk about this. He says, if the devil were ever to show up and say, Martin, you deserve death and hell, he says, I admit, he said, I would say, I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, Son of God, and where he is there, I shall be also. Martin Luther says, go ahead, devil, show up in my life. Tell me I'm not good enough. Tell me I just need to do a little bit more of this thing, to be passionate about this thing, to believe this false gospel, to behave in this way. He says, go ahead, show up and tell me. And tell me I'm not doing a good enough job. And tell me I deserve hell and death and everything that comes with it. And I'll say, what of it? Oh, I deserve that. But Jesus rescued me. So Liberty Northeast, you need to hold fast to the gospel. Don't add to it. Don't require anything else from it. Don't push the gospel aside and take on something else. And some of you need to believe it the first time. And for some of you, you need to remind yourself of it for the one millionth time. But live out of it. Day in, day out. Let the gospel bomb drop on your life and the residue and the dust hit everything. How you treat your kids, how you treat your spouse, how you treat the guy at the grocery store, how you treat the person who cut you off in traffic, how you treat your neighbors and your friends the things you care about, the people you love. Let it all be shaped by the gospel and what Jesus has done for you. Father, we are so grateful for Jesus. And we thank you for him. We thank you for the rescue that you've offered us in him. May we believe it for the first time or may we remind ourselves of it for the one millionth time. But may it hit every area of our lives, we pray. In Jesus' name, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, now and forever. Amen.